My name is Kirk. I'm one of the pastors here, and Tucker's out of town, so I've got the assignment of Hebrews 1, 4 to 14. If you guys would turn there in the Bible, we're going to continue our series in the book of Hebrews. Um, as you're turning there, my plan is just to read it uh, all together so that we get the sense of the whole text and then kind of dive in. So I'm going to read uh, again, starting in verse 4, which is kind of a middle of a sentence, but let's go ahead and read Hebrews 1, 4 to 14. So it's talking about Jesus, and it says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let me pray for us again before we start. Father, uh, thank you again for your word. We sit under it this morning and we ask you to speak to us from what we've read already in our hearts. And then as I uh, proclaim it, Lord, would you just use this in our lives together? We need you. We need to see uh, even bigger and better vision of Jesus in our lives. So help us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, um, we are in this uh, series in Hebrews. Um, I was actually wondering am I going to get to preach today? Uh, Are we going to have service? I saw a lot of churches actually kind of cancel their uh, in-person services, and I was getting COVID vibes, if you know what I mean. Like, it was uh, getting a little bit concerning. Um, And so there's no condemnation for those that didn't make it. Obviously, there's a lot of people who, um, for good reason, uh, were concerned about the weather. But uh, I am so thankful for you guys being here in person because I'm not preaching to a camera. So thank you. Uh, that was something I did in COVID that I didn't appreciate that much. And so it's nice to have us all together today. Um, and I hope and pray, um, again, no condemnation for those who aren't here, but that we never go back to Zoom calls and online church only, right? Um, the reason I hope and pray that is because it is verifiably better for our emotional health, our mental health, our spiritual health, and even our physical health to gather together, to be with the body of Christ, to worship together, uh, to have that society of friends gathering under the word of God and then kind of going from there. It's, I, I know it's healthier. And so um, in that way, it reminds me of what we're doing here in the book of Hebrews because uh, This is better than that. And all through the book of Hebrews, what the writer is doing is he's saying that Jesus is better than everything else. 
So just like if you were away on vacation, uh, away for a work trip, and you had a picture of your wife or your husband, and then you got home, you wouldn't then kiss the picture. You wouldn't cuddle that picture. You would actually give an embrace to your wife or your husband because you're in person. It's better. There's something more. And that's what Hebrews is all about, saying that Jesus is better than everything else. And so just as uh, an introduction, not, not by the way, that all that's being talked about in Hebrews is bad. Like we saw last week with Tucker, he talked about the prophets and he talked about uh, Jesus being a better prophet. He talked about Jesus being better in so many ways. So the Old Testament that is integrated throughout this book of Hebrews is not bad. Um, It's just that Jesus is better than the Old Testament. And so in verses one to four, I'm going to read that again from last week so you can see uh, there. Uh, were a few things said about Jesus being better or superior that are going to be unpacked throughout the entire book. So I want to review them real quick. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so here we have what some people say is the the best or the brightest Christology or the picture of who Jesus is outside of the gospel of John and also the book of Colossians. We sang some of those themes already this morning from the book of Colossians, like of you and to you and for you and through you are all things, right? That's Jesus and who he is as the creator. And Hebrews gives us a clear picture of how Jesus is better. Last week we saw, first of all, that he's a better prophet and he's a better messenger. So all the voices that we could listen to in our life, all the influencers and all the people that speak and say, this is the way to live, Jesus is better than that. And we can silence all those voices if we just clearly listen to Jesus in our lives. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer. We saw that in these verses, that he is the one who created all things and he sustains. I love that picture of the fact that Jesus is the atomic glue. Right, It says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Scientists do not know how the universe subsists. We can study science, we can unpack it, we can come up with theories, and that's wonderful and good and right as Christians, we celebrate that. But Jesus is better than science because Jesus is the originator of science and out of his mouth science speaks. He's the heir and he's the redeemer. He owns all things. And then he sat down at the right hand of God having made purification for sins Jesus is the answer for all of our lives seeking justification and being right. It's been said that all of us in our lifetime are on a long self-justification journey, and it's tiring. And we don't get there because we can never justify ourselves, but Jesus purifies us, takes our shame away, our guilt away, and then he sits down and says, here's this gift for you. So Jesus is better than anything in this world. And I hope that uh, just reviewing that gives us kind of an appropriate sense of awe and reverence for what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Because that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to reinsert awe and reverence about Jesus to the people that he's writing to. Now, I think that he's writing to a 
church, a Jewish Christian church in Rome, Italy. I think that's where they most likely are in the Jewish ghetto of Rome, surrounded by the Roman Empire and also surrounded by Jewish people who want them to turn back and not worship Jesus anymore. And the writer says the main point of this whole book is the supremacy of Jesus, that he is greater, that he's better, that he's the best. And you're going to see better throughout the book over and over and over again. Uh, And then along with the explanations he gives, he gives exhortations. And the main exhortation of this book that you're going to see, in fact, next week, it's going to be the first one, but it's going to be throughout, is that you and I should not drift away from Jesus. We should draw near to Jesus because Jesus is better. Right? Isn't that a temptation? Just as it was for those people back then to drift from Jesus because the pressure of persecution or marginalization and also the lack of exaltation of Jesus being more comfortable, right? If, if I told you today that you can talk about God all that you want at work, at school, with your family that maybe doesn't know or believe in Jesus yet, they would listen to God talk all day long. They'd listen to spiritual talk. They'd say, let's talk about spiritual things. I mean, 80% of the United States, getting to our topic today, believes in angels, for example. And so people are spiritual. People do talk about these things. But the minute that you mention Jesus as being better or superior, you can be guaranteed, and maybe that's you this morning, you don't like that talk. And I understand why. So Jesus is better. Don't drift from Jesus. That's, in a nutshell, the book of Hebrews, but it obviously is unpacked much more than that. Um, And so To get into our topic today, that is, Jesus is better than angels, I just have a question for you guys, uh, because probably you didn't wake up this morning wondering, is Jesus better than angels? That's probably not the question you woke up with. So let me, let me ask you a question. Uh, maybe you guys have seen this. Have you seen going around um, this question? It's on like Instagram and stuff like that, where people are uh, taking videos of their husbands, mainly it's women doing this, um, taking videos of their husbands saying, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Have you guys seen that? Um, and, you know, the husbands are answering like, you know, once a week, twice a month, every day, or whatever it may be. And like, ladies are shocked at how much men apparently think about the Roman Empire. Um, and like, for my job, I'm in the Bible all the time, so I pretty much think about the Roman Empire every single day. That's how I am. So uh, anyway, all that to say, it's a question that seems irrelevant, but for men, it's very relevant, apparently. And we could get into the psychology of that. Let's not do that this morning. Um, nonetheless, so my question is today for us, how often do you think about angels? How often do you think about angels? And that question is going to seem irrelevant for many people because in a culture that's devoid of spirituality, devoid of uh, spiritual powers or beings and spiritual interests in many ways, we just don't think about angels that often. And even as Christians, uh, we think about angels in one of two ways. We typically overemphasize them. There are people who build whole doctrines and lifestyles and all sorts of things off of what they think is an angelic messenger. And then at the same time, there's people who just think there is no spiritual power. And like Tom said already today, that the unseen realm is not that important. And the writer of Hebrews is not going to say that angels are bad, but that they are important, but Jesus is better. And so think about, for example, in our culture, 
that actually there are angels all around us. There are many uh, ways in which our culture does talk about angels. So first of all, it's just been Christmas. You guys all know this movie, right? They open a picture up here. What's this movie? It's a Wonderful Life, right? We have Clarence, the angel, who saves Jimmy Stewart Uh, in this movie, who is George Bailey from committing suicide and not throwing himself into the river, or actually saves him out of the river. And and in doing so, he's his guardian angel, right? And he's kind of goofy, kind of naive, and kind of this picture of an angel that we have in the culture. And then we have other movies, like Angels in the Outfield. Have you guys ever seen this movie here, where apparently angels are really interested in who's going to win the angels game? Um, and we have all these pictures in culture, like angels in the outfield, then there's angels in the infield, and then there's angels in the end zone, right? And so everybody here praying for their NFL team to win today, you guys have something to pray for now. Angels, get in there, help people catch the ball, do all that stuff, right? Then we have, you know, better, but still comical pictures of angels like John Travolta in the movie Michael, who smoked and danced and had a good time and then picked up puppies and saved them and did this whole thing. So here we have many pictures in our culture of angels. And the issue we have, actually, and if you, I, I did this search this week, if you just look how many references to angels are in our culture, you'll be amazed. Now, the main issue, though, is this, what, something that C.S. Lewis said in his day. He said, In scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. It has to begin by saying, fear not. The Victorian angel looks as if it were going to say, there, there. So in other words, he's playing on this point to say, look, there are angels all around us, but those depictions of angels are not the depictions of angels in the Bible. And those are not the way we should engage with the unseen realm overall. I mean, there are other movies that get closer, like there's Constantine and there's Legion and there's these pictures of angels that look a little more formidable and a little more dangerous. But we tend to trivialize these things or overemphasize these things. Um, We think when people die, they become angels. That's just not true. Jesus said believers will become like angels, but won't become angels. And in this fascination that our culture has, we're looking for experience, we're looking for power, we're looking for help, we're looking for all sorts of things through spiritual things, even though we don't always talk about them, when we do talk about them, angels are a big emphasis for some people. Uh, Throughout some religious traditions that are concurrent with us, there are lots of hierarchies of angels and names and where do these names come from and for the Jewish Christian audience that's that's being written to they were steeped in angelology they were fascinated this is part of their identity part of their story read through the old testament and you're going to see angels at key moments throughout the bible and i think they had a better picture And thanks to a new trend in AI, there's also better pictures for us to look at. So I just want to show you some of these that have come out. Uh, Here's a picture of one of the angels described, one of the seraphim in the Bible. And then there's a couple more that we'll scroll through and look at these pictures of these living creatures and these angels described in the Holy Scriptures. So they are much more formidable, much more dangerous, you might even say scary, than our picture of the little cherub playing a harp on a cloud 
or a Christmas angel on an ornament on a tree. So as we introduce this topic, we need to do a little work and do what I call angelology 101. Okay, so uh, the study of angels 101. First of all, what are these angels in the Bible that the passage is talking about? They're mentioned over 160 times in the New Testament, over 260 times in the Old Testament. They are powerful spirit beings. In the Bible, one angel killed 80,000 Assyrians who were encamped around the nation of Israel. They are invisible spirits who can be revealed. In the Bible, there's a story of Balaam and his donkey where he's a prophet going to curse the people of God and there's an angel standing there. The donkey can see it and then God opens his eyes, he sees it and he freaks out because he sees something akin to what we've seen on our screens. But also they can take human form. Later in Hebrews, it's gonna say that you've entertained angels unawares at times because they can take human form. In the story of Abraham and his life, he entertains angels. And then finally, they are an innumerable host and an army. God is called in the Bible, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. We have that song. That's who these angels are. And later in chapter two, Verses one to four, this thought's gonna continue in Hebrews and it's going to actually say that uh, this temptation to worship angels and to give your life to this powerful being, um, that is a temptation because the Jews thought, rightly so, that the angels actually were part of bringing the law of Moses down to God's people. So what do they do? What do angels do? Let's just cover that real quick as well. So first of all, uh, angels worship and praise God. And the Bible says all throughout the storyline of scripture that they stand in the presence of God and say, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. The Bible says that guardian angels that are assigned to people, Christians, believers, stand in the face of God. They communicate messages from God. We have the story in Luke chapter one, of course, of Jesus his birth being foretold where actually the angel Gabriel comes and gives a message. And all throughout the Bible, they bring messages from God. They serve God's people. Daniel, in the lion's den, we have this story in the Old Testament. It says, I was there with these lions. They were hungry. They wanted to eat me. And the angel of the Lord shut the lion's mouth. They bring God's judgment. The book of Revelation pictures mighty angels bringing the judgment of God on this earth. And so this is who angels are. This is what angels do, and maybe that starts to give you a little bit of an appreciation beyond our cultural thoughts of why the writer of Hebrews would tell these people, Jesus is better than angels. Our passage today, the writer is going to make specific application to them and by extension to us that Jesus is better than the angels, giving seven reasons why Jesus is better with seven quotes from the Old Testament that number seven, the number of completeness. He's doing something here for his Jewish audience saying that Jesus has a better significance. He has a better status. He has a better supremacy than all these angels of God. And so first of all, let's look in verse five. Jesus is better in significance. He has a better significance than the angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. 
This is a quote directly from Psalm 2. And the picture here is that Jesus has a better name and that name is significant, right? In our culture, names mean nothing. It's like, hey, why did you name your kid that? Well, because it kind of had some alliteration, kind of sounded right, sounded nice. But in Jewish culture, the names of people meant so much. And the name of God is scattered throughout the Bible as the I am, the all-sustaining one, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, and I could just go on, Jehovah Nisei, the God of war, or the God who heals us, excuse me, Jehovah Rapha. There's all these names of God in the Bible, and the name that Jesus has here, above all of that and above the angels, to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son? And this is a quote from Psalm 2 that is a Davidic ascension psalm that kind of points out something amazing happening. Psalm 2 shows that the Messiah would be anointed, that he would be brought up in the promise of David to be king, that the Messiah would come and sit on the throne of David forever. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Jesus is the king of, God, of God's uh, kingdom. He's the son. Now that doesn't mean biologically, necessarily. What this is saying is in the ancient Near East, you would be put on the throne and be the son You could be the son without being the son, if you know what I mean. That that you could be the successor of a king. And so essentially here, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you are my son, Jesus. God is saying, because you have ascended the throne. You are king. Your name is king. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection. So when Jesus came and lived veiled in glory, looked as a human, looked lower than the angels. He actually came as the Messiah, as the king. And then when he was resurrected, he was ascended to his throne. And now God says, you have a better name. He goes on to share the same thing, essentially by saying, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, quoting 2 Samuel 7, where David wanted to build a house for God and build a a, a kingdom and build a temple. And God said, no, I'm gonna actually give you a throne and a house. Your son Solomon will sit on it and ultimately the Messiah. So here in Hebrews, essentially he's saying, Jesus is better than the angels because he is the king with the exalted name of king, that he is the son, that he is, what the Bible says, father and son on the throne together. Now here's the good news about this. Why is he writing this? What is the application? Well, think about it. For Jewish Christians in that age, they're wondering, how can I be accepted and have friendship if with my Jewish colleagues or in my Roman world. And what he is saying here is, you don't need any of that. You need King Jesus. In the ancient times, if you came into the king's presence, uh, you could be killed. I know that's completely not our culture. Like if you go see the president, he's not gonna threaten your life, hopefully. But if you go to a king's presence, he has to extend his scepter to you in order for you to live. We see this in the book of Esther, for example. And so what this is saying is Jesus, as the king, has extended to you the friendship of the king. That's why he's better. Because not only if you're looking for spiritual experience through an angel or through some kind of spiritual reality, yes, you could try that. Yes, you could have that. But we're offering you and God's offering you the friendship of the God of gods who is on the throne above the angels. 
We want spiritual experience. Jesus offers spiritual sonship. That's the reality. That's the beauty of this part of the passage. That his significance means that he can give you significance. That you no longer have to yearn for experience. You just simply have to enter the door and talk to your father who loves you. Second thing you see in this passage after verse five, starting in verse six, is that Jesus has a better status. Look at verse six. It says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. In this part from verse six to 12, he's gonna quote Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 97 possibly, and Psalm 104. And the big idea is the worshiper versus the worship, the transitory being versus the eternal creator. Here's what we have. Jesus is summoning all of the angels of God to worship him. All these creatures that are marvelous and fantastical and beautiful and powerful and that can have judgment and power in their hands. Jesus is saying, they worship me. One note uh, in verse six that's going to be confusing for some that I need to clarify is that uh, it says when he brings the firstborn into the world. Now, what, what do you normally think of when you think of firstborn? You think of someone born first, right? It's not <laughs> rocket science, you think of that. But in the Bible, this is the Greek word prototokos that actually means like prototype, that means uh, preeminent, that means somebody that is lifted up. And so in the Bible throughout, what you're gonna see is that firstborn is not necessarily born first, but firstborn is actually somebody that's preeminent, that gets the inheritance, that gets the blessing, that they are the ones that God gives that honor to. Jesus is firstborn. And this is important because there are entire uh, religious systems that try to say that Jesus is an angel. Some would call him the Archangel Michael. Some would say that he's the brother of Lucifer, that he is like Satan himself in that sense, that he is a spirit being from before his birth. Some would say that he is a prophet or he is a messenger, but here this doesn't fit into the logic of this passage because he says he's the firstborn, but then he says all of God's angels worship him. And you know, if you know the Bible at all, that nobody is worshiped except for God. Later in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, John the apostle gets a revelation of an angel and he falls down at his feet and he says, as if to worship him, and he says, do not do it. I'm just a fellow servant like you. So angels are temporary. God is eternal. That's what he says in verse eight. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your commands. Do you see what's happening here? He's picturing the Trinity. God, your God. How can there be two gods? Do Christians believe in two gods? No, we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you see that all taking place here. God, your God, has anointed you. Father, Son, Spirit, anointing. And you see this beautiful picture of the eternal God. And they're all summoned, all the angels the Elohim in the Old Testament, which is God's in the Septuagint, the Angelos, the messengers, they're all summoned to worship Jesus because he is God. And that's the second kind of application point I wanna focus on today. This is saying, not only that Jesus is king who extends friendship, but this is saying that Jesus 
is God. That's very important. That's very important for us to know today. Jesus is God, and I want that drummed into our hearts and minds for good reason. We live in a culture that is deconstructing and reconstructing and figuring out what belief is, but here's what the Bible says, that Jesus, the eternal one, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he has always been the same, and he has always been God. And being God, we need to grasp that with our hearts and our minds, because He's not just an angel. He's not just a tack on to our life. He's not just an emotional feel good. He's not just a prophet or a message. He's our God that we worship. You know, for some of us, including myself, before I became a Christian, worship was a foreign concept. Though I did it without knowing it, I thought of worship as like some pagan going up to the volcano and throwing the, the watermelons in, so to speak. Like that seems weird and strange. I would never do that. But worship, as Tom said this morning, is more than that. It's all of our lives. It's what we give and what we serve and what we hand ourselves over to. And so it's important that we know that Jesus is God. And the question is, do you worship Jesus? Not do we sing to him, we just did that. Do you worship Jesus? Do you love him? You know, how do you know someone is born of the spirit? How do you know you're born of the spirit? Not because you come here on Sundays, which is great. Like I said, I'm glad you're here but because you love Jesus as God and you submit yourself entirely to him and give all your life to him and say, you reign above it all. My life as this tiny creation in this world is not about me. It's all about you. And in him, we live and move and have our being. And in him, we find ourselves. That's why Jesus said, those who seek to gain their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and the gospel will find it. When you lose yourself to God, when you worship him, when you love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then you know real life. You see, some people are tempted to worship angels or to have spiritual experience and a whole world of darkness in the unseen realm happens. Maybe that's happened to some of you. I know that I've had spiritual experiences of darkness and I'm so thankful that as Colossians says, I've been delivered from darkness into the kingdom of light and love. If you're in bondage today, Jesus, as God, can deliver you and scatter the fallen angels from your life and give you light and love. And the other application in this passage is from verses uh, 10 and 11, where it says, Lord, you laid the foundations of the, the world. They will perish, verse 11, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. Your years have no end. Now, think about this. What do you do with your clothes when you've wore them out? Maybe they go to goodwill or maybe you just toss them. I was uh, preparing. I preached through Hebrews in, I think, 20, I don't remember, 2014, 15 in England when I was living there. And I got it and looked at my old Vimeo videos from it. And I was like, oh man, I really like that shirt. I really like that coat. And I don't know about 
ladies, but for guys, it's like we buy maybe one or two things and we wear them until our wives tell us, you can't wear that anymore. That has holes in it. (laughs) And I wore those shirts out and I love those shirts and I wish I had those shirts right now, (laughs) but I don't because they got old and they got thrown out. And what this passage is saying is that everything in life, all of our ambitions, our hopes, our dreams, our desires, our bodies, our relationships, our family, everything that we have around us, including the angelic beings, is going to be gone. But Jesus, but Jesus, he is God and he remains And so this is the big question of this passage. Jesus is not an angel. He's worshiped by angels. And this is what makes us Christians. We worship him. And the question is, do you worship him? Do you recognize him as God? And the way that you recognize him as God is by taking all the things that could distract you in this life and submitting them under Jesus's rule and reign because they're all going to wear out anyway. His throne is eternal. His throne is forever and ever. And here's what I want to say. All you need to do is put something in the blank where it says, they all wear out like a garment. Put the things that you emphasize in your life over Jesus. Where it says they will perish, they blank will perish. But you, God, remain the same. It's a new year, like, and we're all have all these visions and desires of new year, new me, and all that stuff. That's fine. But how much of that is around Jesus as God in your life and worshiping him and giving him glory and giving him praise in every area of your life? And how much of it is things that are just going to be rolled up and given away? Last point. Jesus, in verse 13 and verse 14, is better as the supreme ruler. He's better because he's supreme. Here he quotes in verse 13, Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And it's actually the Psalm that Jesus quoted about himself when he said, what's your identity? This is my identity. That God puts my enemies under me as a footstool. Um, you may or may not know that in the ancient East, what would happen when a king or a ruler would uh, have victory over his enemies is they would take the vanquished foe and they'd put him down below and he'd put his foot on their neck. And that was a sign that he had had the victory. I said this in my, I was coaching basketball and I said to the girls, I coach girls, and I was just like, hey, let's put our foot on their neck. They're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) That sounds really weird, coach. And so I had to explain the whole concept. But nonetheless, um, that was a long time out. Um, Anyway, this concept is very important in the context of Hebrews because he's saying angels are not the rulers. Now, they are rulers. The Bible tells us they are rulers and powers and principalities. We war with the unseen places and the unseen realm. That is happening all around us. Worship's happening right now. Angels are no doubt here with us. I know that sounds strange to some, but they are experiencing this worship gathering and they're recognizing the holiness of this moment. So I hope you are. And in the same way, there's demons that want you distracted and there are fallen angels that want to not see you get the full inheritance of your salvation. 
And here it says, Jesus has his foot on their neck. Jesus is the authority as king, the victorious authority. Now I know uh, this is a concept that our culture doesn't get very well anymore because it says here, Jesus tells the servants, go, flame of fire, go serve these people, serve my people, and they go. Now today, someone tells me or you to go somewhere, you're like, why? How dare you tell me? But Jesus is king. And if he has authority over these angelic beings, how much more is that true for you and I? When he says, go, my scepter is one of righteousness. Go do righteousness. Do you do it? When he says, go in my joy, the oil of gladness. Do you have joy? That baby does. (laughs) And what this passage tells us is that One day all enemies will be submitted manifestly to King Jesus. So ought we not, instead of fearing government, persecution, religious marginalization, and not unacceptance by those who have a wrong view of Jesus, a lesser view of Jesus, should we not live for him, proclaim him, do his will, because he is the victorious king? Angels have an important role but it's under King Jesus. It's subordinate role. Now, um, I want to move us towards the end here with this idea in verse 14. It says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Here is the beautiful thing we see, the contrast. Jesus sitting on his throne as king, the angels sent as his servants. One king, many servants. Christ over the church, Angels do his bidding for the church. And so he is so far above. Like this is the reality. The gulf here is insurmountable of Jesus as God, as king, as victorious, as significant in his status and his supremacy over any created being. And this is the idea of Hebrews. And he's saying, now I use my authority and I give you help with angels. You see, many times people are trying to contact spiritual forces because they're just looking for help. And if that's you here today, I empathize with you. I remember, and I've tried. I mean, there's ridiculous things people do. I saw online this week that people have a bottle of angel spray, Michael Archangel spray. And they say, if you spray it, it invokes Michael and he'll give you peace. Now, On one level, I laugh at that, but if that's you, I don't laugh at you. I'm just saying that, unfortunately, there's no help for you there. There's none. And these angels that you look to connect with are lower than this victorious King Jesus. And you can go to him for help. The Bible says God is a very present help in time of need. Go to God. Go to Jesus. He's better. And for us, we don't worship angels, but we are beneficiaries of their service. I want to tell you a story real quick. Um, Some of you have stories like, hey, man, my car was drifting off that one time, and it felt like something knocked it back. Maybe that was an angel. 
You know, I needed a word of encouragement. This random person came and they kind of encouraged me. Maybe that was an angel. I've never seen them before. They disappeared. I don't know who they were. And we don't know fully. Here's a story about something that is true that happened. It's about a man named John G. Patton, who was a missionary to New Hebrides, what's now called Vanuatu. And this missionary, a Scottish guy and his wife were on the islands there and they were in their mission base and they were praying. And as that night was passing away, all of a sudden they saw surrounding them torches and they heard drum beats and they saw the cannibalistic tribes of that area coming closer and closer and closer and closer. And so they began to just pray and pray and pray like, God, please help us, please help us. And then in a moment, it all stopped. And the drums went away and the lights went out. In the course of time, uh, John G. Patton through his work, through preaching the gospel, saw that tribe come to know Christ. And he had a conversation with the chief about a year later. And as he was talking about it, he said, hey, do you remember that night when you surrounded our mission base and when all of that was taking place? And why did you guys leave? Why didn't you just kill us? And the chief said, well, who were all the men that you had there with you? And he went on to say that there was men in shiny garments with swords drawn surrounding the mission base. And so they gave up their effort. He said, we would have killed you, but we didn't because of them. So King Jesus, when you're on his mission, can send his angels to bring protection like that. Now, we don't need angels. You don't need to pray for angels all the time. Like, God, send your angels, send your angels, send your angels. You, you can. You just say, God, help. And he may send his angels. That's what this is. But ultimately, there's this unseen battle. And what they're trying to do is help you live into and experience all of the inheritance that's Christ that he gives to you. There is a battle going on to distract you from living in and enjoying the inheritance that Christ has given you, that you would know how much of a son or daughter of God you are, that you would know the authority of the king to commandeer whatever help you need in your life, that you would know that he is God and that when you obey him and when you follow him, you are living eternally and not for this temporal world. That's what the angels want. They look into our salvation And so we're going to celebrate communion, and I want you guys to go out of here today by the grace of God with great assurance. Because angels are wonderful, but Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is superior. And I I want us to give our lives and our hearts over to him more. And communion is that act where we say, God, you sent your son, he was veiled in flesh becoming a little lower than the angels like us so that you could live for us perfectly without sin so that you could be the lamb of God spotless so that you could pass the test in the wilderness and angels could attend you so that you could live this life as the perfect Messiah defeating all the powers of the unseen realm on our behalf. And so we're gonna prepare our hearts to take communion and say, Jesus, you died. 
because you're better than angels and you're better because you give me this inheritance in my salvation. So let's reflect on that as we prepare our hearts. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this chapter in Hebrews. Lord, I'm sure many of us have temptations to drift and to depart from you for some other spiritual power or some other help or some other need or some other worship or some other significance in our lives. But Lord, continue to point us back to you. Lord, thank you that as we get ready to celebrate our salvation and all that you've given us, you have extended this token of friendship to us in communion. And Lord, we pray you prepare our hearts to really acknowledge what is happening. We are thankful. We love you. We praise you. You are the greatest. You rule, you reign. Lord, bring us more under your rule and reign. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.